This morning, I am uh, just having these uh, individuals distribute and hand out to help us work through this, this passage. I was unable to come up with a good outline without putting great constraints on the text. My goal in preaching is to seek to explain the text as clearly and as simply as I can, and then let the Spirit of God apply that text to our hearts. The text before us this morning has a a very logical layout, and uh, I want you to see that uh, layout and uh, trust that this handout will prove to be valuable to you. But just put that for aside for a moment as I introduce this passage. Last week, we spoke from Romans chapter 7, that portion of scripture that speaks of the inner battle or struggle that goes on in, within us, a conflicting desire to sin and at the same time to serve God. We can say with the Apostle Paul how often we find ourselves doing the very things that we hate and failing to do the very things that we want to do. That's a pretty easy message to identify with. This morning's message is that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Despite that inner struggle that goes on within us, there is complete acceptance with God. Up to this point in the book of Romans, we have been dealing with the doctrine of justification. That is, uh, the doctrine of salvation. How is it that an unrighteous person can be declared to be righteous? Uh, Romans chapter 8 is a transitional or pivotal point in the book of Romans, for it summarizes the doctrine of justification and introduces us to the doctrine of sanctification. Romans 8 verse 1 teaches us that there is no condemnation before God. And Romans 8, 38 to 39 teaches us that there is no separation from God. Romans 8, 1 is a concluding statement of all that is preceded. It states, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The therefore is not just a concluding statement to the preceding verse, but rather to the whole first seven chapters. That will become quite evident as we tackle the passage before us today. As I said, there is a logical construction to this chapter that's easily missed. If you look at your handout, I'd like you first just to look at the the, uh, scripture references. And what I want you to note is the importance of the preposition for. Notice the theme is Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.3, for God has done what the law weakened by flesh could not do. Romans 8.5, for those who live according to the flesh set their mind on things of the flesh. Romans 8.6, for 
To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. So you, you see this four, 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 which means there are an unpacking of numerous reasons as to why there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Four, 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 four. In order to work our way through this and to understand its, its logic, I have introduced a series of questions that I believe are being answered in this passage. They are not raised, but it is the answer, uh, it is the question that's being answered when it says four, 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 four. And so I, I hope it will make the passage a little more uh, comprehensible at first reading. So look at the page with me, and uh, I'm going to be uh, reading pretty much the underlying sections. But it starts with Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Why are those who in, are in Christ Jesus not condemned? For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Why did God place us under the law of the spirit? For God has done what the law weakened by flesh could not do down to the underline, in order that the righteous judgment of the law might be fulfilled in us. Why is it said that we walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh? For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. Why is it necessary to set our mind on the things of the Spirit? For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Why does setting the mind on the flesh bring death? For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Why then are we not condemned? You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. <clears throat> He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So this morning I would ask you to keep that before you and that's going to be our outline. As we work through this passage I'm going to be reading those questions and then expounding upon the answer. One more aside before we start. In Romans chapter 8 verse 1 it reads, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is, those who are saved through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have a King James before you, it has an addition to that statement, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Many of the ancient manuscripts do not have that particular phrase. Therefore, if you have an ESV or an NIV or a New American Standard, that phrase, who walk not according to the flesh, is not found in your Bible. Having said that, that very phrase is found in verse 4. Verse 4 reads, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but, but according to the Spirit. So the 
thought is there, it comes in verse 4, if not in verse 1. I'm just getting that out of the way, but it's important because we're talking about who are regenerate, who are indeed not condemned for their faith. So, to your outline this morning. First question. Why are those in Christ Jesus not condemned? Answer, we are set free from the law that brings death. Notice verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. If you remember in Romans chapter 6, again, this is a summary of the first seven chapters of the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 6, we had the Emancipation Proclamation. Now remember the story of the slave who was set free and had to decide whether he was going to remain on the plantation or exercise his freedom. And we talked about how we need to exercise our freedom to live righteously in Jesus Christ. But we have been proclaimed to be free from the law of sin, which brings death. Now, we find, oh, and then in chapter 7, we saw the principle that when a person dies, they are free from any obligation to the law. And we looked at the example of marriage, how that when a person dies, the spouse is no longer under obligation to those marital vows and is free to be married to another. So here's the summation. You have been set free from the law of sin and death and placed under the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Which brings us to the question number two. Why did God place us under the law of the spirit? Verse three. For God has done what the law weakened by flesh could not do. What could the law never do? Answer, it could never make us righteous. The law was not intended to make us righteous. The purpose for the law was to reveal our sinfulness. The purpose of the law was to show us what sin is and to demonstrate the fact that we ourselves are in fact sinners. That's Romans chapter 7. Why couldn't the law make us righteous? The fault is not in the law, the fault is in us. Romans 8.3, for God has done what the, what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. That is, our sinful nature prohibited us from being fully obedient to the law. Again, this is summation of the first seven chapters. Paul raised the question, what should we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. No, the law wasn't sinful. There was nothing wrong with the law. What was wrong was our own sinful nature. Uh, we didn't obey the commands that God had given to us. So, what was the solution to our lack of righteousness? God did what the law could not do. Verse 3. For God has done 
what the law could not do. That is, make us righteous. So how did God do what the law could not do? Answer, he sent his own son into the world. Notice in the middle of verse 3, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. God sent his son in the same humanity as ours, which means in the likeness of sinful flesh. He's not talking about his sinfulness. He's talking about our sinfulness. But he was made in the likeness of our flesh. He himself was not a sinner. He was tempted in all ways, like as we are, yet without sin. But he was made a complete and full human being. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, namely flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So God sent his son to deal with our sin issue. Again, middle of verse 3. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and now these words for sin. For sin. God sent his son to deal with the sin issue. The primary reason for God sending his son into the world was to deal with the sin issue. I have uh, been reading three different books that uh, address the question, if we had not sinned, would there be any reason for God to send his son into the world? Would there be any reason? Would there be revelatory value, etc.? Well, I found these, these books to be tremendously interesting and thought-provoking. But they're also purely hypothetical. We did sin. And the primary purpose for God sending his son into this world is to deal with the sin issue. Romans 4, excuse me, Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. As you think of the motivating factor of God sending his son to the world, it's universally for sin. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's the purpose of God sending his son, to deal with our sinfulness so that people can be saved. So he, he uh, was sent for sin. And then God judged our sin in Christ's body. Notice the last uh, part of verse uh, uh, 3. 
he condemned sin in the flesh. That's the indented part. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he condemned sin in the flesh. To condemn means to judge. God sent his son into the world in order to bring judgment upon sin. To bring judgment upon our sinfulness. Christ bore our judgment by taking the consequences of our sinfulness upon himself. For the wages, Romans 6.23, of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So God sent his son in order that he would deal with our sinfulness. That sinfulness was dealt with by God condemning Jesus Christ in the flesh. He being crucified on that cross and bearing our sin. The purpose for God sending his son was to make us righteous. Romans 6.4 In order that okay, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That was the purpose. That was the goal. That the righteous requirement of the law might be filled in us. We need to understand this in two ways. First, objectively or positionally, we were not righteous. So Christ came into this world in order to make us positionally righteous, in order to make us acceptable with God the Father. That meant he had to bear the consequences of our sin and had to supply the righteousness which we lacked. So it was through his obedience that he provided the righteousness, even the obedience of dying on the cross. When he said, not my will, but yours be done. He was fully obedient to the will and God of, of God the Father, and thus, in that obedience, his righteousness is counted towards us. He paid the penalty. The wages of sin is death. He died on the cross to pay the punishment for our sin. I think we all get that very well. But having said that, Christ died not only to make us positionally righteous, he died to make us subjectively righteous, meaning that he died so that we would live differently. He died and rose again so that we wouldn't just continue on in our sinful state, but now we would begin to live new lives of righteousness, of which it was incapable of us doing so before. That's where we're getting into this transition in Romans chapter 8, moving from just objective righteousness, where we are acceptable to God, no condemnation, because of the death of Jesus Christ, and now moving to this next part of he is now making us righteous so that we can live holy and righteous lives. There's an important verse in, in 2 Corinthians that says that he, that is 
referring to Christ. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What is interesting here is the asymmetrical aspect of imputation. Asymmetrical, meaning it's not the same. It's not balanced. When the scripture says that he was made sin for us, it means that he was treated as sinful for us in our place. He was treated as sinful, but he didn't inherently become a sinner. His moral character did not change. From the time that he put on our sinfulness, when he was treated as a sinner, that didn't corrupt his being. That didn't corrupt his person. So that even while he was bearing our sin, there was no guile found on his mouth. Peter says that he did not rebuke. He did not charge. Uh, he prayed for those that put him on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus never acted unrighteously. For the purpose of God wasn't to make Jesus a sinner. It was that Jesus would bear the consequences of our sinfulness. Because of Christ's death, we can be treated as righteous. He was treated as a sinner. We can be treated as righteous. But it goes a step further. For God didn't want to simply treat us as righteous. He wanted us to be righteous. That's why the verse says that he who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be made. And the word made is not the same word as the word made for Jesus. The word made would be better and more literally translated become. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. He desires for us now to live righteously. And he died so that that's possible. That's Romans 8 and following. That's an important distinction. Notice verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be met in us, both aspects, objectively, treated as righteous, and now subjectively, that we would act righteously, and thus the next verse, excuse me, the next phrase in verse 4, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So why 
<clears throat> so uh, we live righteously. Excuse me here. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm missing my handout that I gave you. Okay, I found it. All right. So I'm trying to keep two different outlines going at the same time here. Sorry. Um, we do so by living in keeping with the Holy Spirit. Notice verse 4. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We follow the promptings and leadings of the Holy Spirit. We seek the enablement and power of the Holy Spirit. All of this is addressed in much more detail in the rest of Romans 8. Number three, why is it said that we walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh? Verse five, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. When we talk about walking according to the flesh in verse four, we're talking about the manner in which we live or conduct our lives. Note the parallel in verse five. For those who live according to the flesh, those who live are those who walk. So when he's talking about walking, he's talking about the manner of life, the way that we conduct ourselves. To set one's mind on is to make conscious decisions as to how we're going to conduct ourselves. To set our minds on the flesh is to decide to follow our emotions and physical desires. To set our minds on the spirit is to seek to follow the spirit's leading impulses and enablement. So now we are focusing upon the Holy Spirit. It's because of the work of the Holy Spirit that we have new desires, new ambitions, and we have a new ability and power to live for Jesus Christ. Again, all of that is unpacked later in Romans chapter 8. This is a transition. So the next question, why is it necessary to set our minds on the things of the Spirit? Romans 8 verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. If we set our mind, our ambitions, our desires on our sinful nature, our unregenerate, unsaved self, that results in death. However, the person who sets his or her mind on the Spirit, that is, intentionally seeks to follow the leading and prompting of the Holy Spirit, has life and peace. Notice verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Life is eternal life. Peace is peace with God. Romans 5.1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why does setting the mind on flesh bring death? Four things. First, the sinful nature is at war with God. Notice verse 7. For the mind is set on the flesh is hostile to God. We are enemies of God. Romans 5 said, but God shows his love toward us and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more we shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall save from his life. Again, it's a summation. Before we were enemies. The sinful nature does not obey God's law. Notice again, verse 7. For it does not submit to God's law. Not only does it not submit to God's law, it cannot submit to God's law. There's not the moral uh, strength and ability within us. And then lastly, verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We know Romans, uh, excuse me, Hebrews says, without faith it's impossible to please God. But with faith we can please God. We are morally capable of doing so. So then, why then are we not condemned? First, you are not be condemned because you are not in the flesh but in the spirit. Verse 9, you however are not in the flesh but in the spirit. That is, with our mind we are following the new desires that the Holy Spirit has produced on us, in us. We are not condemned if we are truly saved. In fact, if in fact, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Here we have the reassurance in verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be filled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. If you are truly saved, you do in fact have the Holy Spirit. Notice verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now these words. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong to him. It couldn't be clearer. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. You don't belong to him. If you belong to him, you have the Holy Spirit. Now why is that important? For there are a host of people that teach... Uh, a work of the Holy Spirit that is uh, a second work of grace, sometimes referred to, sometimes referred to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What they are looking at is two-level Christians. You're saved, and then you're sanctified. You're saved, and then the work of the Holy Spirit does this incredible work in you, and you just jump to a whole other level. For some, that whole other level is sinless perfection, to some other level is, they refer to it as victorious Christian living, uh, new high, <laughs> new, uh, just incredibly different Christian from what the normal average Christian person is. Okay? That is just totally wrong. This passage says, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. It's not talking about two-tiered Christians. It's talking about Christians. If you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is producing these things in you. If you're not saved, you don't have the Holy Spirit, and it's impossible to produce these, these characteristics, these changes. All right? So from now on, the emphasis is going to be on the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, producing personal righteousness in us, making us more holy. As you think of the Holy Spirit... Think of that as it is a descriptive uh, title. 
He is the Holy Spirit. Have you ever wondered why the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Holy Spirit? We can refer to the Holy Father. We certainly could refer to the Holy Son. That would be, that would be appropriate. Uh, the Holy Spirit is no more holy than the Father, and the Holy Spirit is no more holy than the Son. When we're talking about the Holy Spirit, we're talking about a descriptive title because he's the Spirit of holiness. Because the primary purpose of the Holy Spirit is to make us holy. He does so by guiding us into all truth. He does so by enabling and empowering. We're going to look at that later on. This morning, the point is, here's the transition. We're saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for the penalty of our sins. And as a result, the Spirit of God is now at work in our lives, producing with, uh, in us a personal holiness on top of that objective holiness that we already possess. I hope you can follow all that. By the Holy Spirit, we have life and righteousness. Notice verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Going all the way back to Romans chapter 1. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it is the righteousness of God revealed by faith. A righteousness which is by faith, from faith to faith. It is a righteousness from beginning to end by faith, and it's a righteousness that manifests itself in life. A life of eternal life and a transformed life now. Because we have been given this eternal life, now our lives begin to change. And we are now brought in conformity with the will of God. Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We will have resurrected life. We, our bodies will come forth from the grave and we are going to live with him eternally. And now, this body of death, this body that's going to decay, this, this body that is now having these sinful impulses and desires, the Holy Spirit is giving life, transforming, changing, so that we now are going to desire to live for God. This morning's message was pretty academic, but importantly so. We need to understand, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay? And when you think of that next phrase, who walk not in the flesh, but in the spirit, we're talking about people that are regenerate. We're talking about people who are born again. Not people that have this 
quote-unquote second work of grace or this baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're just talking about people who are born again. If you are born again, the Spirit of God is at work in you. And the Spirit of God is changing you, making you more and more conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Romans 8, 9, 10, 11. We'll get there. But uh, here's the transition. So let's pray. Our Father, uh, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that there is now no condemnation to those who place their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, because it was God's purpose to make us righteous, that we have not only positional righteousness in which we are able to stand before your presence sinless because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, but you are objective, uh, subjectively at work in our heart, making us more righteous people. And we thank you for that day in which we will stand before you in your presence, not only uh, righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ and positionally so, but when we stand before you, we will be uh, a righteous people. Uh, that there will be no more lying and cheating and stealing, uh, for you will have transformed us. For we shall be like you, for we shall see you as we are. So, Lord, uh, help us as we continue to work through Romans, uh, that we would uh, begin to live righteous and holy lives that bring honor and glory to your name. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.